girlfriend, you are listening to Bold Is, formerly known as the Bold Movement Podcast. We have rebranded, and you can learn more about that at www.theboldmovement.com. Today, we are going to start Mark chapter 3, but before we do that, we want to read one of our reviews. This is something we would like to continue to do, but in order to do so, we need you to leave us some stars and opinions. Preferably five stars and good opinions. (laughs) All right, let's see what Hansel Mom has to say. If you've been meaning to read your Bible, study its contents with the goal of really knowing and loving and living the gospel, then plug into this podcast. I'm 39 and have spent most of my life owning a Bible and anticipating I would read it thoroughly someday. Well, that time is now. Megan does a great job of explaining the context of things so you truly understand what's going on and more importantly, the meaning and the why behind it. Questions and different points of views are welcomed. This is truly a great opportunity for young women to begin to develop a deep love of and yearning for Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, Hansel Mom. Those are such sweet words. We want to hear what you guys have to say. So leave us a review and maybe you'll be heard on Bold Is. Enough of the intro, guys. Let's get started and dive on in to Mark chapter 3. You are listening to Bold Is. A ministry podcast training women how to handle the Word of God. Buckle up, sis. It's about to get real. Here's your host, Megan Rawlings. Hey, girls. Listen, I swore that if I ever started a women's ministry or began to teach at any capacity, I would never tell some silly story about animals or feelings to try and drive home a point that scripture is trying to make. I always want to be authentic and raw and I want to strip women's ministry of any kind of cheesiness and shallowness that I can. So I'm not going to do that. I am just going to tell you the story of what happened to me last night. There is really no point other than it was the craziest thing I have ever seen in my life. So my husband is working on his doctorate at Westminster, and he has to go to Philadelphia for a week here, a week there to um, do the hybrid of his class. And of course, the week that he leaves, I'm home and it's like everything happens when I'm home by myself. So last night, I'm sitting on the phone and I'm talking to him on FaceTime and I see this, what appears to be a moth fly around my head not thinking much of it. I keep talking and then I see it again and I look up and it is not a moth. It is a humongous bat. And only having experience of watching bats from television, I just kept seeing this thing flying into my hair and getting caught in it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, The Office, okay? That's all I need to say. You got Dwight and Meredith and the, the bats in there and he's got the, <laughs> the broom <laughs> and the trash bag and it's so funny because I'm like oh my gosh Matt there is a bat in our house flying around I can't do anything about it he goes get a broom and he's like coaching me how to take care of this and I said I am not getting this stupid bat you're we're gonna have to do something so I call my dad and he's like nowhere near and of course I'm like oh my gosh so then I'm like calling my brother he's traveling home from Virginia and I don't understand why all of the men in my life are nowhere to be found. So I call my best friend and our executive vice president, 
um, Ambria, and I, I FaceTimed her and I said, listen, this is a 911 emergency. You've got to get to my house. And luckily, they only live like two streets down. And she's like, I can't, you know, all she has four kids. All the kids are asleep. And I said, then send Dave, which is her husband. I said, someone's got to come get this bat out of my house. And by the time he got to my house, it had been about 20, 25 minutes since I had last seen this bat. And I know the story's nuts. And you guys are probably thinking, okay, Megan, get to the point. There's really not a point. This is just a crazy story. So Dave gets to my house. And at this point, by this point, it's been like 20, 25 minutes since I've seen this bat. So I'm convinced that I have hallucinated it or something. I'm like, there, maybe it doesn't exist. And so he goes over to my, uh, my curtains and he goes, okay, I need you to have my back. And I'm FaceTiming Ambria while we're doing this. I need you to have my back. If this bat flies out, you can't run and scream. You have to get the broom and shoo it towards the net. He, he's got this fishing net. And so... He starts shaking the curtains, and while he's shaking the curtains, from behind, I swear, it's like the great outdoors. <laughs> it's like a comedy movie. From behind, nowhere near the curtains, comes this bat. And of course, me promising I've got his back, I turn around, scream, and run, and ditch him. And then he's like chasing the bat around. It was seriously like a comedy movie. And then the worst possible thing happened. It disappeared absolutely disappeared so we looked for like over an hour for this stinking bat can't find it anywhere we open up the door I am praying that it just flew out the door I haven't seen it today <laughs> we don't know what happened to it but isn't that the craziest story probably not that was probably like okay Meg that's great anywho Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We are so excited to work through Mark chapter 3. We're just going to do the first six chapters today um, because we've had so much information thrown at you all at once. And I just had to tell you my stupid bat story. Um, so we're going to start um, by reading chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. And then I will read each verse individually and we'll break it down. Okay, here we go. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Okay, just to kind of recap, if you guys have not heard um, the last podcast where we talked about the end of Mark chapter 2, the same similar, not exactly the same, but it was a very similar situation where the Pharisees are trying to trap him while he's working on the Sabbath, while they're doing things that they quote-unquote shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath. The healing of the man with the withered hand is what I like to think of as the end of the beginning. Hear me out, okay? This is the fifth conflict that Jesus has been in with the Pharisees and Sadducees, Sadducees that we have seen since chapter 1. We're only in chapter 3 of Mark. This is all building up to what we call Passion Week. And if you're not familiar with what Passion Week is, it's the week 
that leads up to the death of Christ. You see, his series of events that upset the Pharisees um, that led up to the crucifixion was not based on one standalone event. It, it was the series. This is the conclusion of that first set. So it's the conclusion of the first five things that really ticked off the Pharisees. So let's go ahead and break these verses down just a little bit more. I'm going to read verses 1 through 2 again for you. And in case you're wondering, I am using for today's podcast the English Standard Version. So if you want to follow along, um, you can do that. We also are including a worksheet. So that way, if you've missed something or if you want to check something out that we talked about, you have it in writing and maybe that, that helps. Let us know. Give us some feedback on that, whether you liked it or not. Okay, verses 1 through 2. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So a close parallel of what's going on can be found in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 14. And if you read that, it gives a little bit more insight into what's going on. This is also talking about a demon-possessed woman, um, but he is at the synagogue on the Sabbath, and it helps us understand more of what's going on between him and those around him. So when you get a chance, you know what, let's go ahead and read it. I've got it here anyway. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. What? Jesus teaching on the Sabbath in a synagogue? <laughs> and behold, there was a woman who had, um, who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, and this is, this is where it brings it into what I was talking about in Mark. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Okay. Jesus' enemies were very upset about him working on the Sabbath. We get that. And William Lane, um, I have his commentary right here, and I'm going to read it to you because I think it is very interesting. Um, let me find it really quick. He says, Jesus' adversaries, which are enemies, were convinced that he was a violator of the Sabbath. Their attitude was well expressed by a synagogue ruler who was exasperated with the people who came to Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And we got that from Luke, and I just read that, okay? Like other aspects of Jewish life, the practices of medicine and healing on the Sabbath was regulated by legal tradition. It was an accepted principle that any danger to life takes precedence over the Sabbath. The scribes, however, had determined precisely in which cases it was proper to speak of immediate danger to life and to what extent aid could be granted. In none of the recorded healings which Jesus performed on the Sabbath would the scribes have agreed that there was an immediate, immediate threat to life. The presence in the synagogue of opponents who were scrutinizing Jesus' activities indicated that they were convinced of his ability to heal. They did not regard his capability as extraordinary, but as a power he shared with others who did not exercise it on the Sabbath. Let's go ahead and take a look at verses 3 and 4. Okay. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. 
So the law that was made that permitted healing on the Sabbath was taken from what is called the halacha. Sorry if I butchered that pronunciation. This is also what we got from verse 2 where we were talking about the um, guy, the leader of the synagogue, who was like indignant to Jesus. He was taking information from the halacha. This was a collective body of religious laws for the Jews. In asking this question, Jesus is not actually debating the principle of life and death situations. He's debating whether one can do good or not on the Sabbath. He's showing them, yet again, they are completely missing the point. Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Don't abuse what's good and turn it into something that's frustrating. Okay, let's go ahead and read verse 5. And he looked around them, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus knew that their silence was not equating consent. There's in no way was, were the Pharisees giving Jesus permission, quote unquote, um, to heal the man on the Sabbath. Their silence came more out of a contempt for what Jesus was doing. This also made Jesus incredibly anger with a righteous anger. I want to take a second and explain the difference. Sinful anger is rooted in selfishness. Righteous anger is rooted in the way that God would view something. And if it would upset God, that's a righteous anger. An example of righteous anger, um, a child being intentionally hurt, that is grounds for righteous anger. Um, People abusing um, the law, (laughs) that is grounds for righteous anger. Someone being um, picked on, hurt, bullied, Um, anything because of the color of their skin that should cause a righteous anger in their pursuit of adding to the law of God they lost the entire point of the Sabbath I once heard these laws explained like this Um, today we call this um, legalism so Essentially, I want you to picture this. You're playing in the backyard, you're a child, God is your dad, and he's standing on the porch, and he says, hey kiddo, um, you're playing with this ball, there's a really busy road near where we are, just be careful, Um, be aware of that road, I don't want you to go close to it. That's, picture that as God's law. Legalism says, okay dad, I don't want to get close to the law or close to the road because I'm scared that I'm going to go into it. I'll be tempted by it. So I'm going to build a fence that divides the play, the play area and the road. And then we go a step further. You know, that fence is too close and I would like to build another fence to keep me from that fence. And eventually you keep building these fences until you're in this tiny little square with nowhere to go because you're surrounded by all these rules, constantly trying to earn your salvation, essentially. And that's what legalism does. When, if you take a step back and you're objective, all God said was to not go near the road. Whenever we're reading scripture, we need to 
make sure that we're reading it through a lens where we're saying, okay, what is God saying here? Is he telling me that I can't, 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 can't? Or is he saying, hey, be mindful of this because I want you to be righteous and like me. Something to think about. In this story, the Pharisees lost sight of the mercy and grace that they have received from God. And in turn, they were not able to love and meet people where they were. That's what happens when we let legalism take over. It's almost like love has no room to come out. Let's wrap up with verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. There is so much more to this than you would believe. The fact that the Pharisees are holding counsel with the Herodians shows us the extent of their contempt for Christ. This bitterness and anger that they showed, that is what stirred up the righteous anger in Jesus in verses um, 4 and 5. So what now? What does this teach us and how can we use it in the 21st century? We have to be so careful to not get lost in the tidiness of being a Christian. We can't show up to church on Sunday and pretend like we have it all together because that's what we're supposed to do. We have to stop thinking that staying away from cuss words and beer is what makes us righteous. The Pharisees were great at that, and they still ticked Jesus off. They followed the rules, they were sticklers, and he was still so upset with them. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus straight up calls them hypocrites. This might not seem like a big deal right now, but in the first century, this was quite the insult. Ladies, do not lose sight of God's grace. Don't be selfish and hoard it. Receive it and spread it to those around you. Lose your self-righteousness and in humility spread the love of God. Remember, bold is extending the grace and mercy that was given to you, even and especially when it breaks your added rules and legalism. Go out and be bold.